0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au Okay everyone, so let's um, start again and uh, the, uh, what we have seen this morning is um, the idea of the Dhamma. Dhamma arising in the world. So you have the Buddha, and then you have the Dhamma that comes into existence. The Dhamma, of course, starts when the Buddha decides to become a teacher. He decides not to be a a Pacheca Buddha, but to actually be a real teaching Buddha. And that's the Dhamma arising in the world. So now we have the Buddha, the Dhamma, and of course the third one is the Sangha. And that's what we're going to see next, how the Sangha Arises as a consequence of the two first ones. So uh, now we're going to, to see that, we're going to move back to the uh, uh, Chula Hatti Padopama Sutta, which is, uh, so going back to where we left off before, the shorter Sutta on the simile of the elephant's footprint. Uh, So we are, there's a little one mark in the text, and we're starting after that little one mark on page three here. Mm. Mm. Okay, so we're going to start there. So uh, the um, Buddha decides to teach, Yeah. so uh, the story continues in the story we we're looking at before the Buddha goes back and he meets the five ascetics, and he is able to convince them, and then they start to teach, and they teach around uh, uh, all over the kind of Ganges Plain. That's where the Buddha used to stay, so in different areas of the Ganges Plain. Uh, and uh, this typically what happens is the following. Yeah, The Buddha arises, and he uh, his teaches this Dhamma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and then what happens is that a householder hears that teaching, or a householder's child. Uh, This is the Putta or someone reborn in some good family. They gain faith in the realized one and reflect. Living in a house is cramped and dirty, (laughs) but the life of one gone forth is wide open. It is not easy for someone living at home to lead the spiritual life utterly full and pure, like a polished shell. Why don't I shave off my hair and beard, dress in ochre robes, uh, and go forth uh, from the lay life to homelessness? Uh, and after some time, they give up a large or a small fortune, uh, a large or a small family circle. Uh, they shave off the hair and beard, dress in ochre robes, uh, and go forth from the lay life to homelessness. So This is the arising of the Sangha. This is how the Sangha comes into being, yeah. the beginning of the going forth. Uh. So you have someone yeah, who listens to these teachings, and uh, you will notice it is kind of a strange expression, yeah, the householder, a householder's child. Yeah, And uh, then someone Reborn in some family, what, what exactly is this about? and the idea here is that the householders in ancient India, the gahapatis, maybe it's still the same now i don't know i don't know that much about India, but in <laughs> in these days, the householder is like the establishment uh, of the society, yeah, they have a house, and in that house, you have the whole large family yeah with children and grandchildren, and maybe It's a large family, and then you have all the workers who work for them, and maybe they have some fields that they plow to kind of make a living or whatever. So it's like a large unit. Uh, And this is the establishment in society. Those are the people who have a good life, who are educated, who have all of these kind of things. Uh, These are the householders. They are owners of houses. Uh, And uh, so because of that, this is why it is said, right? Because if they go forth, uh, like I mentioned before, it's worthwhile, even if you are Wealthy or famous, it's worthwhile going forth because life is basically the same for everyone. It doesn't matter all that much whether you are whatever you are in society. Uh, this is the idea that even the people who have a good life, uh, they choose to go forth because the teaching is uh, uh, the ideas expressed are valid for everyone. That's kind of the point. Uh, so the householder's child doesn't mean a small child, it just means someone who is the son or a daughter of a householder probably means like a grown child, right? Because the householder is getting old, so he can't go forth anymore. Too old to go forth? Okay, my children, you go forth. <laughs> Something like that. And then you have the last one, someone reborn in some family. I'm not sure if good family, but family. It means anyone else, too, can go forth. Yeah, It doesn't matter what your status is in society, even if you are very low status, of course, you can go forth as a Buddhist monastic. There is no discrimination in that sense in the Sangha, which is good. yeah, the, sometimes you hear these ideas that the Buddha abolished the caste system, or he was anti-caste system. But I don't think that's quite right. he didn't really the Buddha didn't have many political opinions. The Buddha was not someone who tried to reform society. Yeah, the Buddha kind of accepted society the way it was. So it was only within the Sangha that there was no caste. Within the Sangha, everyone was the same. But it, he wasn't really a social reformer in that sense. So, um, But it, within the Sangha, there was no kind of social hierarchy. So you listen to the Buddha and you gain faith. Yeah, You hear these teachings, you think, wow, this is really powerful stuff. Yeah, if you are ready uh, to hear the Dhamma, if you have maybe some good karma from a past life. Uh, sometimes people talk about developing the paramis from the past. Uh, the, don't, the suttas don't talk about that, but it's this idea is the same. We have developed some good qualities that enable you to um, gain faith in that Dhamma. Yeah, many people won't be able to do that because they haven't got the background. Uh, but if you have developed those good qualities, then uh, yeah, you are ready to hear it. Uh, so, um, yeah, you get faith in the Dhamma. I was just going to say, you notice as soon as I came in, in here, that noise stopped, now it's about to start again. Oh, don't start now. <laughs> that's kind of how you get faith in the Dhamma. Listen, sometimes it just accident happens by accident, and people think, wow, that's really, that's really powerful. <laughs> Get these things wrong, yeah. You gain faith in the Buddha, yeah? And then when you gain faith, because you understand the idea of the Dhamma, how it works. The Dhamma works by seclusion, Dhamma works by leaving society behind. you understand that life living in a house is cramped and dirty? The the cramped means it's confined. Yeah, sambada is the Pali word. Sambhada means like it's a sense of being confined, there's people around you, the house is crowded. Yeah, Especially in those days, the house was probably, you know, you had lots of children and there was lots of things happening and very busy. And when things are close to you, it's hard to get that mental space whereby you kind of stand apart and you feel you can really calm down and leave the life behind, when it's always around you. It's hard to do that. So for that reason, Buddhism has always been about leaving that home life leaving in that environment where you have all your attachments around you. You have no chance of giving up those attachments when you're always reminded of all the people and everything in your life. Uh, so you need to stand back a little bit. Uh, it was very. I thought it was quite interesting. I had uh, my father passed away a couple of years ago now, and I it was kind of interesting to see. Um, you know, I I wasn't particularly sad when my father died. Not because I did, didn't like my father. I had a very good relationship with my father. Uh, but it was almost like uh, you know you have kind of um, as a monastic you're kind of withdrawn a little bit from that lay life. Uh, you see things differently after being a monk for 25 years or whatever. Uh, it's almost as if you have some of those attachments aren't very strong anymore. Uh, you're kind of withdrawn from that. Uh, I'm not making some claim to be some super duper monk or anything like that. Uh, I'm just saying it's a natural process when you withdraw. Yeah, it happens to everyone. Uh, you don't have those attachments anymore in the same way. Uh, And that gives you a sense of clarity when you haven't got that. You can see things more neutrally. You can see your parents for who they are. Your parents are human beings like everyone else. And because they are human beings like everyone else, you can forgive them for their weaknesses. You have a different relationship to your parents, a more balanced relationship, whereby you can have a more sense of... Your appreciation that you have for your family is more... um, it is more kind of uh, real. It is not kind of based on these bonds that we normally have between each other. Yeah? And this is a very wholesome thing, I think, yeah? because it means we can't be pulled around. Uh, we c- our emotions are not always being manipulated by other people. You live too close together, we often manipulate each other emotionally. You know that if you want to get your way, you have to say that thing, yeah, and then they will kind of react. <laughs> and sometimes we don't do it Deliberate. It's almost like just a natural consequence. We just do it almost automatically. Yeah, we kind of this uh, manipulation going on of people, uh, especially within families, but also in society in general. We do that. Uh. So you withdraw. And when my father died, I. It's not because I'm a very advanced monk or anything like that. Uh. It's just that that withdrawing helps you to gain that neutrality. Uh. You withdraw from the cramped conditions, uh, the confined conditions of household life. Uh. And I must admit, I think I'm a bit attached to living in a cutie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. living in a cutie by myself, I think I, I think I have a bit of attachment. I think if you were to drag me out of the cutie, I would be kicking and screaming. I would not yeah. be <laughs> not be happy at all. <laughs> because it's it's wonderful to live by yourself, yeah away from any habitation, away from other people. all you have is kangaroos jumping around, and kangaroos are they're kind of innocent compared to people <laughs> you, know? you have a few ticks, of course, which is the kind of the downside, but uh, it's wonderful to live like that uh, and sometimes I go into the city, I go into Perth and uh, Certain areas of Perth, the real estate is very expensive. uh, So they have small plots of land. But they have these big mansions on these small plots of land. uh, And I think, I don't want to live like that. Small, the one mansion is one meter away from the next one uh, because the land is so expensive. uh, But they're really, really big houses. uh, And then I think, what would I rather live in, a big house like that, uh, or in a tiny cutie? I'll take the tiny cutie any time before that big mansion. who wants a big mansion? Just of you have to look after it, yeah, you have to clean it. And even if you have like domestic helpers to help you, you have to look after those domestic helpers. There's endless headaches. My cutie is seven square meters, yeah. That's my cutie in a monastery. It takes two and a half minutes to clean, yeah. <laughs> okay, two two minutes and thirty-five seconds. Okay. <laughs> It's so it's so nice, and so easy to deal with. Uh, yeah. And uh, right now, before I came here, I was in the process of throwing out a few things, because I realized I had to do a few things too many. So when you chuck a few things out. You have even less than you had before. Uh, and it's such a wonderful way to live. Uh. You want to become monastic? Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I'm selling selling monasticism <laughs> here. <laughs> See what you do. Uh. So uh, it's really it's a very... I don't know. I think it's the best way. It's a really good way to live, actually. Yeah. So, what do, what do you think, uh, Ajahnissara? Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. nature. Mm. That's the other thing, exactly. So, it is household life is cramped. You don't have that as a monastic. Yeah. It is dirty. The par the Pali word is a raja pato, which means literally means a path of dust. That's what it means. Uh, and remember before, we talked about having dust in your eyes. So the idea of dust here is the idea of defilements. When you live at home, there is more defilements. You are close to things, you have more attachments, you are more easily upset and more easily have desires coming up because of these things are around you. So it is difficult yeah, to um, live that life purely. But life gone forth, on the other hand, is called wide open, abu which means like uh, out in the open, quite literally, which which of course it was, uh, especially in those days you would live even more in nature than you do now. You might live at the foot of a tree or something. It is not easy for someone living at home to lead the spiritual life utterly full and pure, utterly complete and pure, very hard, because you are always drawn into the things of life the things that attach you, the things that hold you back yeah it's much more difficult and it's kind of interesting people often ask oh yeah yeah the buddha said it's possible to become a stream entry when you're a lay person so no need to go forth but that's kind of you know maybe in theory it is possible but we have to distinguish between theory and practice and in practice it is much very hard much more difficult as a lay person than it is as a monastic, because whole of monasticism is geared towards these things, yeah? geared towards deep meditation, geared towards giving up those things that block you and all of that. As a layperson, much more difficult. It depends, of course, a little bit on how you live as a layperson. If you live very separate, and you live on your own, and you kind of have your own life completely separate, you don't even live in a relationship and all of these things, then, of course, it is easier. But even then, there are certain downsides. Uh, don't have the same kalyanamittas, uh, don't have the same access to the Dhamma, and all of these things, uh, as you have as a monastic. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, anyway, so um, for these reasons, this is why the Buddha established the monastic order, the Sangha, bec- for precisely for these reasons. So. so, that is where you can live it utterly pure. Yeah, In lay life, there's one of the interesting things about you you hear from lay people as a monastic people always ask about this these um, problems they have how do you resolve this yeah in when i go to work how can i kind of get by without lying how can i always tell the truth how can i not cheat a little bit you know all of these things these are the dilemmas of lay life uh, it's often very hard to live 100% purely as a lay person because society is such that sometimes you Kind of, You have to take shortcuts, and you cannot really do things 100% always. Uh. But of course, as a monastic, you can. This is the wonderful thing. here. Uh. As a monasticism, there is nothing to force you to not be 100% honest, uh, because this life doesn't have those uh, kind of dilemmas, uh, whereby you have to choose one or the other. So it's far more difficult, as a layperson, to live with that kind of purity. Uh. So you go forth. Uh. You get it. Uh. <laughs> Like a poly, become like a polished shell. Why don't I shave off my hair and beard, dress in the ochre robes, and go forth from lay life to homelessness? And after some time, they give up a large or a small fortune. Yeah, you give up. I think the Pali word is Boga kanda, and Boga literally means everything you own. It doesn't just mean money, it gives ev- means everything, right? Uh, everything you own, you give it up. And uh, so this shows you the idea of renunciation, what that means in the suttas. It means giving up ownership of things, uh, not having stuff anymore. Yeah, The less stuff you have, uh, the m- closer you are to this early Buddhist ideal. Uh. And even in the present day, sometimes you find uh, monks who just have a shoulder bag. They leave the monastery with all their belongings in one little shoulder bag, and they kind of g- walk off and never see them again. That's kind of cool. I don't know, I really, I really um, I find that very inspiring when you see monastics who live that way. You leave a large and a small family circle. You leave your family behind and you walk off. and. Um, doesn't mean you never see your family again. Of course you, you can. It just means that you don't live with them in the way you're used to. And then you shave off your hair and beard, dress in the ochre robes, and you go forth from lay life into homelessness. So this is how the Sangha comes into existence, right? And this is why the Sangha comes into existence, because it is the, like, the ideal way of practicing here. Of course it doesn't always work like that yeah th- whether the, your life as a monastic is going to be good or not depends on a lot of factors uh, and it's not just something you can do sometimes you need to try it out for a while see if it works for you and all of these kind of things it is uh, but um, if it works for you if you're ready for it then it is the ideal way of practicing the dhamma so what Is it uh, that these people hear from the Buddha? Why is it that they go forth? Uh, Remember here, I'm saying at the beginning, that this whole gradual training uh, is really just an expansion of the Noble Eightfold Path. It is a Noble Eightfold Path, kind of pulled apart, and all the little details put into it. uh. So, what is it? And of course, what that person hears, the reason why they decide to go forth, uh, is because of the very first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. It is right view that they gain. Yeah? They listen to the Buddha and say, oh, that's true! Jesus, you're right, I, I sort of knew this, but uh, wow, this, this is... and it's like awakening the inherent wisdom in each one of us. Uh, yeah? When we hear these teachings, we n- there's something that recognizes the truth in these things. Uh, and this is why we gain faith and confidence. Uh. You know, The idea of a teacher is very often to awaken the wisdom that we already have inside. Uh, yeah it's already we are able to recognize these things, but not fully comprehend it, and then we move towards it. It is not like the teacher teaches you because you are completely ignorant; it's already latent there, otherwise, if it wasn't latent, you wouldn't be able to grasp the truth of these things so it is a right view that the Buddha teaches us that's why you decide to go forth that's why you decide to become a Buddhist, yeah. So what exactly is that right view? And I want to talk a little bit about that, because this is really uh, kind of super significant. If you want to supercharge your path, uh, if you want to add the turbo on that path, you need to understand the idea of right view. People already asked about this yesterday, about right understanding. Uh, but now I would like to look a little bit more at that. Uh, and to do that, uh, I'm going to go back again to the suttas later on, so you can move on to page 11 in these uh, uh, pages here. And we're going to look a little bit at this idea of right view. So um, I hope you don't expect anything very happy. I hope you expect some really depressing stuff, because... Uh, <laughs> This is the Dhamma for you. Yeah? It's pretty kind of, it's in your face. So, um, these suttas here, next one is called Old Age. Does not sound very promising, does it? So, uh, so um, these suttas are from the Sutta Nipata. Sutta Nipata is uh, one of the books of the Kuddaka Nikaya. Kuddaka Nikaya, the short collection. Nikaya as a collection. Kuddaka means short. And um, short, it happens to be, it's, it's funny, it's called short, but it's actually the biggest, the longest collection in the, of all the f- five Nikayas. But anyway, so this is one of those uh, collections. And that collection, the Sutta Nipata, is divided into five uh, chapters. And uh, this is chapter number four, it's called the Attakavaga. Attaka means eight. Yeah, Atta is eight, Attaka means relating to eight. Uh, the chapter of eights is what this chapter is about. Uh, and this chapter is very interesting. The, the next one is called the Parayanavaga. parayanavaga is uh, similar to this chapter. They're very interesting because they are referred to in a number of places in the suttas elsewhere. Yeah? So we know that these are very ancient poems. Uh, they're very strongly linked to the other suttas. Uh. So for that reason, they are very interesting. Some of the parts of the Sutanipata may not be so ancient, but these are kind of part of the oldest of part of the Sutta Nipata. These verses are also found in translation in other languages. So you have the ancient Chinese. these were translated into Chinese 2,000 years ago or something, yeah, in, in kind of ancient Chinese. And so they exist there as well. This is another uh, indication that these things are very ancient. So for this reason, these are very exciting poems. They yeah? are very interesting poems. Uh, have a kind of very good pedigree, as they say. Yeah? So, old age is one of these poems. So this is how it goes. I'll pro- I'll read out the whole thing, and then we can discuss it. Maybe um, w- w- discuss these things gradually, slowly go through it. So short, alas, is this life. You die before a hundred years, and even if you live a little longer, you still die of old age. People grieve over belongings, uh, yet there is no such thing as a permanent possession. Separation is a fact of life, uh, and when you see this, uh, you wouldn't stay living at home. Whatever a person thinks of as belonging to them, uh, that too is given up when they die. uh. Knowing this, an astute follower of mine uh, would not be interested uh, in ownership. Just as, uh, upon waking up, uh, a person does not see what they encountered in a dream, so, too, you do not see your loved ones uh, when they are dead and gone. You used to see and hear those folk and call them by their name, Yet the name is all that's left to tell uh, of a person when they're gone. Those who are greedy for belongings uh, don't give up sorrow, lamentation, and stinginess. Uh, that's why the sages, uh, the seers of sanctuary or safety, left possessions behind and wandered. For a mendicant who lives withdrawn, sitting in secluded places, uh, they say it's fitting uh, to not show themselves at home. A sage is independent everywhere. They don't have likes and dislikes. Lamentation and stinginess slip slip off them like water from a leaf. Like a droplet slips from a lotus leaf, like water from a lotus flower, the sage doesn't cling to that which is seen or heard or thought. For the one who is cleansed does not conceive uh, in terms of things seen, heard, or thought. Uh, They do not wish to be purified by another. Uh, They are not acting either for passion or dispassion." Uh, So um, let's have a look at this poem in a little bit more detail. Uh, So, um, life is short kind of that's where it begins you if you're lucky you live a hundred years very occasionally people live a little bit longer but most people die before they get to a hundred i don't know what is the average age now in australia around 80 years or something like that so if you live to 80 you are kind of uh, you you've done really well so uh, the idea that life is short yeah is a very important thing because it is so easy to become heedless it's so easy to think that we have a lot of time. yeah. But the reality is that uh, everything we do matters. Uh, every moment is important. Uh, and the idea of bringing up this idea that life is short. Old age comes so quickly. Uh, it's so fast. And before you know it, you are dead. Uh, and you had the opportunity, but you didn't take it. Uh, you don't want to regret things when you die. Uh, you want to be satisfied that you have done your best. Uh, yeah. And this is one of those important recollections of the Buddha. There is the a well known sutta where the Buddha talks about the five kind of themes of recollection that we should have. And those five themes are I am subject to sickness, yeah, illness, I haven't gone beyond illness. I'm subject to old age. Haven't gone beyond old age. I'm subject to death, having gone beyond all death, having gone beyond death. All the things that are dear and pleasing to me, I must become separated from them. They must become otherwise. And the last one is, I'm the heir of my actions, my kama. Yeah, those are the five things to remember. So these are important reflections. Yeah? Old age comes fast, and when you think about old age, death also, of course, is very, very closely related to that. Death is the most powerful of old reflections, but old age leads in the same direction. Things happen so fast. We can die at any time. Yeah, The idea of dying at any time is very powerful. You just don't know. I don't know about you, but sometimes you look at this body, and you kind of look at some kind of chart that shows you this body, and it's so complicated. There's blood vessels going everywhere, there's kind of nervous systems going everywhere, and everything seems so incredibly fragile. When I look at that, I think, whoa, surely I can die at any time looking at that. You had a tiny little thing kind of blocking the artery, and bang, you had it. So, I don't know, to me, this, this body looks incredibly fragile when I see it. Not only is the body fragile, uh, but the world outside is so uncertain. Uh, these crazy drivers. I going for walks sometimes, and you see kind of these maniac drivers driving driving around occasionally. Uh, and uh, you, you know that you're not in charge of your own life. Uh, you know it is so uncertain. Uh, yeah, it is really kind of uh, unreliable. Uh, and these kind of reflections are very powerful because they remind you that now is your opportunity, now is your chance. You don't have time to say a bad word. You don't have time to say a bad thought because you don't know what's going to happen next. Every opportunity matters. So This is like driving home the reality of that life. And I think most people, they are kind of surprised when they suddenly are old. They are surprised when they suddenly die. Oh, it wasn't supposed to happen. Not yet. I'm not finished yet. I haven't said my goodbyes or whatever. Say your goodbyes now. Every moment you should have said your goodbyes. You should never feel that you're not ready to die. Now you have to be ready to die. If you're not ready now, you will not be ready when it actually happens. There's only one time to be ready. That's now. So this is when you think like that, then you start to change your attitude to life. You look at things in a different way. You start to re-prioritize. Uh, things look different. Uh, how do you reprioritize? Well, it means that your attitude to things uh, are different. You don't have to do things very differently, but you change your attitude to the things of life. Old age. It's interesting. So this is uh, one of those reflections. Uh, people grieve over their belongings. Uh, yeah. Yet, there is no such thing as a permanent possession. Separation is a fact of life. When you see this, you wouldn't, you wouldn't stay living at home. <laughs> yeah, the idea that there is no real possession, the idea that we think we own things. Yeah? Do you own things? Well, how do you feel if someone steals something from you? Do you get upset? Probably yes, right? You don't really want people to steal your things. But uh, that's maybe we shouldn't perhaps get so upset if someone steals. Maybe it isn't yours in the first place. If it isn't yours in the first place, maybe you wouldn't get so upset. And there is this beautiful simile that I usually read out on every uh, meditation retreat I do. And this is called the simile of the borrowed goods. And this is where the Buddha says that everything in our life is really like borrowed goods. Yeah, We have it for a while, then we have to give it up. At the latest, you have it to give it up when you die, often long before that. It's a powerful way of thinking about things. And the simile is something like, like follows. The simile is like this... Uh, there's a man who has borrowed wealth. So he drives around in a big carriage, and he has all this fancy jewelry or whatever. Yeah. And he kind of gets, you know, maybe he gets a bit of an ego boost, because now he's really important, because he has all of these things. And then, after driving around in the city, people say, oh, look at that wealthy person, yeah, wow, they're enjoying, the, enjoying all this wealth. And then shortly afterwards, the owners, they take back all those things. They take back the carriage, they take back the fancy jewelry, and suddenly he doesn't have anything. How do you feel when that happens? You feel kind of naked, yeah. You have identified with those things. You have become a wealthy person in your head. And the psychology, once you feel once you become a wealthy person, you feel a bit apart from the rest of society. You feel a bit different, you feel a bit better maybe, yeah, even though you have no reason for it, you still feel a bit better, yeah. And then they take it all away and you feel naked. It was a very interesting piece of research that was done in New York City. Uh, many years ago and there was a research done with people's how they drive their cars depending on what kind of car you have. Yes, yeah, so they looked at people's behavior in traffic and compared that with the car that you have. And they found that the bigger your car was, the more expensive a car, car was, the more reckless and uncaring you were in the traffic. Isn't that fascinating? It's really fascinating. It shows you that once you. many people, when you become wealthy, you lose the contact with the ordinary people. You set yourself apart as if you are something different from other people because you are more wealthy, you are in a higher social status. It's like you lose con- contact with the ordinary people of the world. And this is kind of what what happens, right? This is what possessions do to you when you live them in the wrong way. Not everyone who is wealthy is like that, but it is a tendency. It's easy to feel that you are separate. Maybe you feel, oh, other people want my belongings, and you're concerned about that, and all of these kind of things. Uh, So you are more... uh, So this is uh, the danger. But what happens if you remember that your belongings are just borrowed? you happen them for a short, have them for a short time, then they have to go. And, would, uh, and the idea here is that uh, if you think of, for example, uh, renting an apartment or renting a car, uh, how does it feel to rent an apartment, to rent a car, compared to owning it? And that is the difference between having a possession and borrowing a possession, right? If you rent an apartment, or you rent a car, you still look after it. But you don't put a lot of emotion or attachment into that. It's easy to give up when the rental period is over. Yeah? You knew all along, you just rented it. It's not a big deal. Or if something goes wrong with the car, or you have an accident, you're not too concerned if you have an accident. But if you have an accident with your car, boy, that's really, that's really painful and really, really terrible. So this is the kind of the attitude, yeah, the distinction, how we think about things. So see if you can have this idea of the things in your life are borrowed goods, and see how that makes you relate to things. They're going to have to go anyway, and it's much more hard to give up if you don't think of them as borrowed goods. So this is the idea behind this. Nothing is permanent. Nothing can be held on to. Everything is so unreliable and so uncertain then you have kind of the right idea behind this. So. Separation is a fact of life. When you see this, you would not stay living at home. Yeah, the, uh, if you see that you have to give up all your possessions anyway, might as well do it now. Yeah, Give it all up, you become a, become a monastic, bang! You are. That's kind of the idea behind this. Yeah? Whether you give it up when you die or you give it up now, not that such, not not a big difference. Yeah, basically the same kind of thing going on. Huh? So that is the idea of uh, borrowed possessions. Uh, whatever a person thinks of uh, as belonging to them, uh, that too is given up. When they die, knowing this, the astute follower of mine is not interested in ownership. Uh, yeah, Same kind of thing, uh, just a p- continuation of the previous one. Uh, ownership is kind of irrelevant. Uh, there is a beautiful story, a beautiful uh, little verse, or sutta, in the um, Sangyutaniqa. This is in the Devata Sangyuta, one of the, uh, I think it's in the Devata Sangyuta. And that is the simile of the burning house. Uh, Yeah, the simile of the burning house is that if the house is burning down, uh, it is the pot that is rescued that is valuable. Uh, Everything else is kind of irrelevant. Uh, The pot that you rescue out of the house—that's the one you can use. Everything else is burnt up and melts uh, and is no longer useless. Uh, And then, in in the same way, the Buddha says, when you of the wealth that you accumulate in this life. uh, the wealth that is rescued, that's the wealth you give away. Yeah, Because you can use that karma that you make by doing acts of kindness. You bring that with you into the future. The rest is burned and destroyed in this life. You cannot take it with you. So giving, being generous, is like uh, using your possessions in a way that you can take it with you into the future, even after you die. It's a nice way of thinking about it. Uh, yeah. The pot that do you take out of the house, that's the one that is valuable. Uh, so uh, that is the idea of belongings. Uh, just as upon waking up a person does not see what they encountered in a dream, so too you do not see your loved ones when they are dead and gone. So we are uh, again, this idea of a dream. yeah, the world is a bit like a dream. It kind of seems very real, but then suddenly everything is gone. And um, And one of the one of the strange things is I sometimes sometimes you reflect on the people that you are attached in this life, uh, yeah, and it in this life it seems so. It seems so. It's so real. Yeah, these are this is your family members. These are your close friends, and these are the people of the BSV or whoever they are. And we are attached to. them. Of course, we are attached to them. But remember, you have been attached to people in past lives as well. In past lives, you were attached to family members. You were attached to other people, and in that life, it seemed just like this one. It seemed really, really important. And now it's become completely irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant what happened in the past lives. So it's kind of useful to think like that. Now it's completely gone. That attachment is no longer there. Now you're attached to new things. In your next life, this life will be irrelevant. The attachments that you have now seem irrelevant. You will be attached to something else in your next life. There will be some other person that you don't even know about in this life. And so you start to see this kind of progression. We attach to one thing. Then we are forced to let it go. Then we move on, we attach to something else. And then we are forced to let that go because of impermanence or whatever. And then we attach to something else. And it goes on like that. And then you start to, f- start to see how ridiculous it is. Yeah. Why am I even attached in this life? When there is this progression on in the future, I will just move on to some other thing that I attach to instead. The whole idea of attachment starts to seem so hollow, so empty. There's nothing really there. You always have to move on from one thing to the next one. It's like. Uh, and the problem, of course, is this kind of attachment is just like this inner thing that we have to do. It is not that the external things really matter, it is the inner psychology that n- makes us attached to things in the world. And so we always go out and go out and reattach again and again and again. But the object is kind of irrelevant. We let go of one object, we hold on to something else. We let go of that, and we hold on to something else. And after a while you think, why am I even holding on to these things? If I'm always changing, always moving around, the whole thing starts to seem very silly. And then you start to let go of the whole idea of attaching. And you see the danger in that. And you understand that the reason why we attach, ultimately, uh, is because of the sense of self. That is what you have to let go of. It is the hand that attaches, the hand that holds, uh, the self that grasps things in the world. That is where the problem is. And unless you do something with that sense of self, you're going to keep on in this cycle of attaching, being forced to let go, attaching, being forced to let go, forever, always suffering, but suffering with new things. Every time, every time it seems important, but every time you have to let go and then you find something else and it's dead. It's crazy when you think about it. This going around and around and around, making the same mistake, time and again. This is what the Buddha is pointing to here. So you don't see those loved ones when they're dead. You used to see and hear those people, uh, you call them by their name, uh, yet the name is all that is left to tell uh, of a person uh, when they are gone. Those who are greedy for belongings uh, don't give up sorrow, lamentation and stinginess. That's why the sages, the seers of sanctuary or safety, left possessions behind and wondered. We often say that when the Buddha talks about the world, he sees the world in exactly the opposite way of everyone else. What the world says is happiness, the Aryas say is suffering. What the world says is suffering, the Aryas say is happiness. It's almost as if we have got it completely the wrong way around. And this is one of those statements right there. We are greedy for belongings. We want all of those belongings. But actually, all those belongings, that is what gives rise to the sorrow, lamentation, and stinginess. We hold on to those things, and then they have to go. Yeah? We want the things in the world. We are searching for things that are inherently suffering, inherently problematic. We've got things the wrong way around. But when you let go of those things, uh, when you are free of those things, you can find a far more satisfying sense of contentment and happiness within. Uh, that is why the sages uh, they see the sanctuary elsewhere uh, in samadhi, in insight, in the spiritual path. Uh, you leave all that suffering behind, all those possessions behind, uh, and you wander in the world instead. Uh, We are greedy for dukkha. We want more dukkha. Give me dukkha. Yay, more dukkha. Thank you so much for all that dukkha. I, thi- I think it is sukkha, but uh, you know, it's wrong. For a mendicant who lives withdrawn, sitting in secluded places, uh, they say it's fitting not to show themselves at home. You don't go back to your house anymore. You don't, certainly don't stay there, you don't live there. You may show yourself in the sense of just walking by or saying hello or receiving some alms, but you don't stay in that home anymore. You are withdrawn from the, those things. You are sitting in a secluded place or living in a secluded place, withdrawn from that society. The sage is independent everywhere. They don't have likes and dislikes. Lamentation and stinginess uh, slips off them like water from a leaf. You don't have likes and dislikes. Your mind is even, your mind is equanimous regarding the things of the world. You don't hold on to things, you don't have a greediness and aversion towards the things of the world. You just look upon the world and you are kind of amazed at why people are still kind of trying to find happiness uh, where no happiness can really be found. Uh, that's really what they are saying here. Uh, you don't have those likes and dislikes. Uh, you stand back from it all. You have the upeka. Yeah, when we use the word equanimity, upeka means to look on. That's really what it means. Uh, you're just looking on. Uh, you're seeing things uh, yeah as they really are, but you don't get involved in that world. Uh, You don't get attracted. uh, You don't get repelled. uh, You just move through the world like this uh, uh, person without any kind of... uh, nothing hooks into you anymore, uh, mentally. uh. Like a droplet slips from a lotus leaf, uh, like water from a lotus flower, uh, the sage doesn't cling to that which is seen, heard, or even thought. For the one who is cleansed does not conceive, in terms of things seen, heard, or thought. Uh, They do not wish to be purified by another. You are not acting either for passion or dispassion. The cleansed does not conceive, the Pali word conceiving, manyati, is, uh, I think it's manyati, I'm not sure, I haven't looked it up, the Pali, but uh, uh, it has this idea that we add things to the world, things that are not really there. Yeah, We add things like a uh, sense of mine, a sense of me, a sense of ownership. Uh, we add the craving, we add the views, uh, we add the sense of permanence, we add the sense of happiness. Uh, but none of these things are actually inherent to these things. Uh, yeah, This is a manyati, it's the wrong way of understanding the world. Uh, and. Um, so, so you do not conceive of any of these things anymore. You don't think of them in those terms, of mine and me. And uh, you don't have views about them. You see them in the right way. So what we are talking about here, we hit at the very end here of this uh, poem, we're coming to the, the idea of the noble ones, the Arias, uh, yeah, who don't misconceive anything. There is no I and me and mine relating to anything in the world. This is what this is about. And because there is no I and me and mine in terms of anything in the world, they do not wish to be purified by another, because they already have insight into the nature of reality. They don't need anyone else. You don't need anyone else to point out the path. You've already come to the point where you understand what is going on. So a stream mentor, someone who has seen the Dhamma, doesn't need anyone to help them, to show them what to do. Huh? Because they have internalized the teachings. Yeah? You don't want to be purified by another. Huh? You are not acting either for passion or dispassion. Huh? This means that you are no longer trying either to be passionate, nor are you trying to be dispassionate. Huh? Yeah, Because you have already gone beyond all of that. Huh? If you are a noble one, you don't need to try to be dispassionate. You have always already achieved that dispassion through your uh, practicing the path. So you're no longer trying any of these things. Instead, you're just living in equanimity and in peace and in calm in the world without any of these things. So This is the idea of old age. Yeah, it's a bit more than old age. That's kind of what this poem is about. Uh, and uh, so this is what the Buddha means by right view, yeah? This is kind of right view in the world. Uh, and uh, a lot in that poem, it seem they can seem quite fancy. And very often the reason why it can seem fancy is because uh, it is written in a language that it's actually difficult to kind of express it in English in a way which is equivalent to the Pali. The Pali is very succinct. The Pali has certain technical terms. We don't really have in English in the same way. So in English it sounds very complicated. In a Pali it's actually much simpler than this. Uh, So don't be um, confused by some of the complexities here. Uh, The main thing in this verse, the thing which really matters, uh, is the idea of old age. Uh, That is really the important thing here, old age and death, uh, these things coming together. uh, The fact that ultimately we cannot hold on to anything in this world. uh, And because we cannot hold on to anything, uh, we might as well let go now. Now is the time to let go. And the way to do that, the way to let go, is not by an act of will. I'm going to let go. That is not the right way of doing it. The way to let go is to reflect on these things. to remind yourself that old age is just around the corner. Death could be just a matter of walking out the door, and that could be it. Yeah, Losing your possessions, losing the thing you have, can happen so fast. It is that sort of reminder. And every time you remember that, you become a little bit wiser. It sinks in at a deeper level. And especially if you are in a place like this, you're on a retreat situation, you feel a bit more peaceful than usual, and when you feel a bit more peaceful, uh, you the, uh, the possibility for these ideas to sink in uh, is much greater, uh, because you have more clarity, you have more vipassana. When you are on a retreat like this, uh, samatha vipassana, always going together, uh, you have a little bit of peace, these ideas become far more powerful. Uh. So use this these few days. Yeah, There is so much noise here, it's hard to kind of... Uh, meditate for this kind of noise level, so reflect on old age instead. Yeah? This is kind of the opportunity uh, You can't be peaceful, but at least we can re- reflect on old age a little bit, uh, and allow these ideas to sink in deeper than they have sunk before. <laughs> so that is kind of the idea here. Yeah, Old age is around the corner, death is just around the corner. If you are about to die, what is important in life? Many things are completely unimportant. A lot of things in life don't matter anymore. Yeah, A lot of things become completely irrelevant. And all that matters when you are about to die. What is it? Well, it is about how we treat other people. It is about the kindness of our heart. It is about being generous. It is about being caring. It's about being understanding of other people. That is what matters when you are about to die. If you are lying on your deathbed, you know that you only have a few minutes left. What are you going to do? Are you going to pick an argument with someone? <laughs> That's the last thing you're going to do. Yeah, you'd, I'm dying, for goodness sake, go away. I don't, want, yeah, I don't want to have an argument with you now. I just want to be peaceful. Imagine lying on your deathbed. Yeah, you come to the very end of your life. All you want to do is be left alone. You can just be peaceful and you can die in peace. So if you are there now, if you are already on your deathbed, we are all on death row already. This is death row, being born is like being on death row. Yeah, It's going to happen, guaranteed. A beautiful simile in the suttas is found in the Araka Sutta. Check out the Araka Sutta, it's in the Anguttara 7, 71 or something like that. And it's this sutta about all the similes, about how short life is. and These similes, they're really cool similes. And um, that's Mara coming back again here. <laughs> 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 and these short similes, one of them is like, life is so short. It's like a dew drop on the grass before the morning sun. The morning sun comes and the dew drop is gone, just like that. In the same way, says Araka, life is short, just like a drop of dew on a blade of grass. Has a really, really kind of really nice similes. and one of the similes that to me is the most powerful one is found in the Araka Sutta. Also found in the Sutta Nipata, it says that life is like we are like a cow led to slaughter. Yeah, cattle, yeah, animals are used for human consumption, and sometimes you are led to slaughter. And every step that cow takes, it is one step closer to death. In the same way, every step we take, too, is one step closer to death. Always moving in that direction. We know the end point. We know where we're heading here. Every breath is one breath closer to death. So don't breathe. No. (laughs) That's even closer to death, right? So you you can't win. That's the problem. That's the the issue here. (laughs) So these are some ideas that I would recommend you to develop. The Buddha specifically says that everyone should develop these ideas, these five themes, yeah? the themes of old age, sickness and death, and being separated from everything you love and care about in this world, and that you are the owner of your karma. Develop these ideas. The Buddha said women and men should both develop them. Lay people and monastics should both develop these things. Everyone should develop these things. Uh, they are fundamental to the spiritual life. Uh, yeah, so please uh, remember these things. Uh, the last one of these things is that we are the owners of our kamma. This is a very interesting thing, because uh, there's nothing in the world that we own, says this particular verse. There's nothing in the world that we own. Uh, the only thing we own, ultimately, is our kamma. And even our kamma, we don't own 100%, because even our kamma is going to come to an end eventually. But we own that much more than we own the possessions of the world. Uh, So that's why what we should really be concerned about uh, is not the things that we own, but how we live with those things, uh, how we make the most out of this existence, uh, how we can maximize our kindness of our hearts, uh, to build up this ownership of something that you really can take with you, beyond your death. None of this can be taken with you beyond your death, but the goodness of your heart can be taken with you when you pass away. In fact, you will take it with you, and if you don't build up that goodness now, well, you will take with you whatever you have when you die. So, for goodness sake, build it up. So that when you start out in your next life, you start with an advantage. You already have done something to build up those good qualities inside of you. that, And you will be so thankful to yourself in a previous life. You will think, oh, wow, thank you, me, for doing all the good things in my previous life. Yeah? Why is it now that you are here as practicing Buddhists? Chances are you were practicing a spiritual life. You were probably Buddhist in a past life. So thank yourself for doing the right thing in the past life. <laughs> Be kind to yourself, yes, and then when you think like this, you, because, uh, we, you know, the reality is that we have done the right thing somewhere. Uh, that's why we are here, uh, and so we have this chance of doing, of um, carrying on in that same way, when we think about these things in uh, the right perspective. Uh, and then we are on the right track. Uh, you are the owner of your karma. It's the only thing you own. Uh, everything else is uh, utterly irrelevant. Uh, And then when you do come to your deathbed, uh, because you have lived well, uh, because you have lived with kindness, uh, when you die, you will feel content. You will look back on your life and you will say, I have done the right thing. You have nothing really to feel remorse about or bad about. And then when you die, you can die peacefully. The more loving kindness you have in your heart, the less fearful death is going to be. If you have lots of meta in your heart when you die, you will have no fear at all. Death will be irrelevant. Perfectly okay to die. There will be no issue anymore. So make your death a peaceful one by building up the qualities now. Taking that with you into the future as you die. Give yourself a gift. Yeah? Ultimately, it is yourself that you are giving you're giving a gift by living well in this way. Okay. Time is up, so uh, let's uh, continue, have a uh, nice afternoon, have a nice cup of tea or whatever, and then we'll see you back again at uh, 6.30 this evening here. Let's pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.